Got some uh, big David Hare fans in tonight. Always <laughs> nice to see. Hello, my name is Helen Lewis. I'm Associate Editor of the New Statesman, a left-leaning political magazine. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Sir David Hare, who wrote I'm Not Running, which you're about to see tonight. Also, the author of acclaimed screenplays, plays, and a memoir, The Blue Touch Paper, which I particularly enjoy. Um, I'm going to start by asking you about something that's the uh, epigram to the script, David, which is a Thomas Mann quote. Uh, Opinions lie in the street. Anybody can pick them up. Why did you pick that? Uh, really, because the play's about um, somebody having to commit themselves. Um, and it's very, very easy for us, who are not responsible for running the country, uh, to have opinions. And we all walk around with a set of opinions which may be determined by our social class or our geography or our parents or our life experience. And we say, this is what we believe. Um, but what I've always been interested in is, ri is writing about, you know, the reason that I wrote about Israel-Palestine and Via Dolorosa and again in Wall is that Israel-Palestine are societies where what you believe really matters. In other words, where you live, what school you send your children to, who your friends are, what job you have, what the ease with which you live or the difficulty with which you live. You determine, not just by your social status by what but, but but with whom you associate your own beliefs and they determine everything in your life and so opinions are very very easy it's commitment that's really hard um, and that is really the subject of I'm not running as it's been the subject of many of my plays um, about the difficulty or ease with which somebody takes on responsibility I was in Israel and Palestine in the summer and I, got, I talked to people who worked in theatre there and you got the sense this is somewhere where everything that you say is incredibly tense and incredibly fraught and you can imagine riots at a theatre very easily. How hard is it to say something that is that provocative in British theatre? I know you, you, know, you don't mind being provocative, but are there things that actually genuinely upset people, provoke them? Um, there's a, there, there was a wonderful play called um, Insulting the Audience by, um, well, this was a hippie play in my early, in my youth, by the distinguished Swiss writer Peter Hanker. And he wrote a play called Insulting the Audience. And it was so disappointing that it precipitated the best heckle I've ever heard, which was after an act of almost nothing happening, a man yelled out, I came here to be insulted. <laughs> uh, and I, th I think it is quite difficult to stir people to uh, but there are, and I don't, uh, you know, we're in the usual problem, which is I don't want spoilers for those of you who are going to the play tonight. And it's a little difficult sometimes to talk about. Uh, but the leading lady of the play, Sean Brooke, has regularly had, he uh, she has regularly heard members of the audience say things out loud. Um, and I love that. They there are interjections at various points where people are provoked to inter interjections. Um, certainly when I wrote Stuff Happens, uh, which was about the diplomatic process <laughs> leading up to the invasion of Iraq, uh, there was a wonderful performance in New York where a man who apparently, I mean, he had a voice like a longshoreman, just yelled out, I cannot believe this, <laughs> at the top of his voice. And I love it when that happens. I think it's very exciting. Was there a moment in British politics that crystallised your desire to write about it? Because this is, a, for you, a return to the Labour Party after the absence of war. Was there a moment that, in British politics that crystallised your desire to, to write this play? This play? No, it was really ten years... No, I've been eight years writing this play. 
or rather I started eight years ago uh, with the idea that, that a play would begin with the idea that someone was refusing to run. Um, and by the end of the evening, they might or might not run, I, no spoiler. Um, and so that idea of how, but I could not work out how I was going to write this play. And it took me, and I was also thinking of writing a play about a hospital closure, uh, because as uh, Pauline, the leading character, says in the play, the two most powerful words in the English language are hospital closure. Uh, when you talk about something which gets people worked up to an astonishing degree, um, hospital closure is really the, the thing that, that, that is almost the most provocative thing you can do in civil society, is close a hospital. Um, and so I suddenly realized at some point in the sort of mid-decade that these two plays were in fact the same play, um, and that hospital closure and I'm not running were the, were the same play. And once I'd realized that, then I was onto it. But it, it you know, it's fiction. And this um, is a very difficult form to practice these days uh, because everybody wants documentary. Um, and everybody assumes that a political play is going to be um, about real life events. And so everybody's idea now of a political play is that you take Bhopal or you take Chernobyl or you take some historical event, Peterloo, and you, know, you make a work about that historical event, which is essentially a dramatization of something which really happened. Um, but this play is in a genre which I fear is threatened um, and very, very rare now, um, which is a fiction in an entirely parallel universe in which there is no such thing as Jeremy Corbyn or Brexit. Right, which I will admit that I, 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 I went 2017, but, but where's Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, that might just be a kind of Pavlovian reflex that I just kind of get tense whenever I think that there's going to be a discussion of, of Brexit. But do you think that people struggled because they expected it to be of the moment? I mean, you've talked about this idea of chasing the dust cart, right? This idea that if you're writing about things that are very now, that have just happened, as a, you don't want to be a dramatist following that and knee-jerk reacting to that. Yes, I, I've, I don't think I've ever written documentary for the sake of writing documentary. I've always written documentary. If, if I have dramatized real events, which, which really would be what I would take to be the two um, seminal events of the 21st century, first of all, uh, the misappropriation of 9-11 in order to launch an invasion of Iraq, um, and then secondly, the financial crisis in 2008. So that stuff happens in the power of yes. Um, but both of them, I hope, had some metaphorical resonance beyond the subject that I was actually writing about. I don't, I don't see any point in merely reiterating in the theatre events that we're already familiar with. What's the point? Um, you've got to see them as metaphors for something else, something larger, and to have themes that apply to all sorts of subjects. Um, the, the one that you know, is most touching to me is the permanent way, which was about the railway system and, the, and about the uh, privatization of the railway system. And, uh, you know, I was, Max Stafford Clark, who was the director, was a train fanatic. So for him, it was enough that there'd be a play about trains. <laughs> he just thought, oh, it's great, there's gonna be a play about trains. 
And I was in a workshop with him thinking, I, but trains really bore me stiff. I, I'm not excited at the prospect of a play about trains and narrow gauge and all that stuff. And uh, then suddenly we met one of the um, survivors of one of the crashes. And then we met the bereaved of someone who had died in the crashes. And we realized that their two attitudes were completely different. In other words, the people who had survived the crash wanted to forget about the crash and put it behind them, whereas the people who had lost their children and family members in the crash urgently wanted investigations. And their two approaches, for instance, to memorial services were completely different. One wanted to memorialize the event um, in a way which celebrated survival, and the other, of course, wanted an angry, de almost a demonstration on Paddington Station. And so once I realized I was writing a play about grief and not a play about trains, then I was away, because that grief is a universal subject, and the play was available to people as a metaphor, and in particular to a friend of mine from New York who came and left in floods of tears, and I said, I you know, didn't know you cared so much about the British railway system. And he said, no, no, to us, this is a play about AIDS, because this is a play about was this suffering necessary or was it not? Was this catastrophe necessary or was it not necessary? So I read the whole evening about, in terms of what my, my friends who had died from AIDS. And so it, once you, once you move out of documentary, you're moving into what I would call art. And art is what I'm interested in, not documentary. It's a revolutionary idea yeah, that I you know. should play right well, to write I, fiction. I mean, now it is absolutely, at, at this moment in our theatre, this is a very difficult idea to put across to people. But I think it also has resonance in the play, and without spoiling what happens later, the, the first scene, Sandy, the spin doctor, comes out, and there is a game between him and the political journalists of saying, she's not running, she's not running, and they say, we all know what it means when you say she's not running, we know it means that she is running. And I think that's one of the things that repulses people about modern politics, right, is the feeling that there is a game being played by some people happening over there which has arcane rules that, you know, we don't have access to, we don't know what's going on, and it's not, it is no longer authentic, and that's one of the reasons that Jeremy Corbyn was so appealing to people. People like the tracksuit and the bike and, you know, the, the slightly shambolic appearance, because they read that as he isn't playing that game, right, which is exactly what people felt about the, the Blair era, that very common criticism of Tony Blair being an actor. And, and, and that has now, that fiction has now, if, if theatre is becoming, you know, there's a more of a demand for, for you know, for, for non-fiction, the kind of opposite thing has happened in politics and there's more of a demand for fiction. It, it's a very strange kind of mix, isn't it, the way that our, our media mediates between that stuff. It's certainly true that when I wrote The Absence of War, which was based on the Neil Kinnock campaign in 1993, well, the, the play was in 1993, was it 91, the campaign? I can't remember. Yeah. Ni ni or 92, 92. Um, I, you know, then I was broadly sympathetic to politicians. In other words, I had the view that people in society want different things. These things are irreconcilable. You and I can go around saying, well, there ought to be more money for hospitals, but somebody actually has to work out 
Is the money for hospitals? Is it for schools? Is it for this? Is it for that? What are the priorities? Do I impoverish this group in order to enrich that group? Do I advance this group and do I, do I then annoy that group? You know, they are the people who on our behalf are making all the difficult decisions which we don't have to face because we don't have to um, reconcile the irreconcilable. And I was broadly sympathetic to them. I lost all my sympathy for them over Iraq. In other words, I just think the number of people in the Houses of Parliament who went along with, and knowingly went along, with something that they knew was a dodgy operation and insufficiently justified, that, that really was a, was a watershed for me. Um, because you really had to look to, you know, Charles Kennedy and Robin Cook. You were looking to you know, 20 or 30 people among 650 to represent the views of half the country. And, you know, the country was split right down the middle, but the half of us who did not believe in the operation were not represented, were barely represented in Parliament at all. And so people, politicians behaved so badly at that moment um, that I then began to think, what are they for? And obviously my, um, you know, this this play and the way it represents politicians is much less sympathetic, perhaps, than it was in the absence of war. I think it's fascinating. And my, my experience of the Iraq war was different. I was a student at the time, and as you can imagine, students, we were quite against the Iraq war. But I do have a strange thing now where I look back and think, I would like the luxury of rebelling against a government that was in totality as useful and left-wing as Tony yeah. Blair's government. That would be a nice government to be to the left of. Yeah. Um, so it's a very strange, you know, it, it, I, think it's, I think there's always a certain kind of gratitude for politicians past. You cannot feel for the current crop, right? There is a, a thing that everybody thinks that their set of politicians are pygmies and useless compared to the titans of the past. Is that, is that at all how you feel? Well, I think, you know, Gordon Brown is the obvious example of a man who seems to me so as wise and... Uh, to have such incredible stature and now appears to be addressing all the most important things in the world. And also sort of did actually perform pretty well, him and Alistair Darling. You know, okay, there are criticisms you can make, but actually the management of that financial crisis when it came along wasn't bad. It may have been Gordon's Brown fault, part, partly his fault that it happened, he may have been partly to blame that it happened in the first place, but his actual management of it was pretty terrific. But as soon as a, a politician loses power, they instantly become attractive. Um, and it, because they can't mess your life up anymore. And they can't ruin your life. And, uh, you know, I have been at events in which much the most popular person in the room, everybody, you go, you, you walk into a room of 400 people and you go, Who's that person over there that everybody wants to talk to? It's John Major. And um, at, yet at the time, seven years of what now seems heroic resistance to the forces of Brexit, um, not a single person, well, very few of us, had any good words to say for him at all. Well, it comes to the, my favourite line in, in the play is about Pauline, which is, it's scary arousing hope because at once you become the only person who can then deliver disappointment. Um, and I wondered, who was the last politician who aroused hope in you, and, and did they disappoint you? Uh, <laughs> no, I think, I mean, obviously, because I did write about Neil Kinnock, and, um, you know, Neil Kinnock in the absence of war, I mean, it, it was a lightly fictionalised, and it was a, a play everybody understood because they knew that it was based on Neil Kinnock, unlike this play, which is not based on anything except my fictional universe. 
Um, but I did admire Neil Kinnock very much, um, and I liked him very much, but he still said that watching the play was the three most difficult hours of his life. Wow, um, and up against some pretty stiff competition for Neil Kinnock. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I'm, I suppose I should be proud. Um, uh, but then I said, but Neil, why are you upset? I represent you as so noble. And he said, yeah, but you represent me as a noble numbskull, he said. Uh, and it's true that I, I represent him as essentially drained by the experience of trying to get the Labour Party back into power, because it did, it did sort of drain him of, essentially, of his authenticity. And so what I'm writing about in this play, and the reason I've returned to writing about the Labour Party, is because I want to write about what you, you, know, you mentioned in your programme note, Helen, which is that thing of, we want our politicians to be people, and obviously when I was writing this play, I was aware that France had just elected a president who was, as it were, a person rather than a politician. Well, you know, <laughs> the Champs-Élysées are burning <laughs> as we speak, you know. And so it is a very complicated question of why are our heroes outside party politics and why, you know, the minute we, they, they enter party politics, do we cease to believe in them? I think it's a fascinating question of why do we hate politicians? And it's kind of a think about a sort of self-hatred, really, because they are the people who have to say that you can't have a unicorn, you can have this horse or that horse. Yeah, but, there, but, but I would say the 21st century has been, uh, you know, these two events, which are the events that interest me, the financial crisis, you know, there is a... Uh, you know, it, as I spent some time being forced by Nick Heitner to write a documentary about the financial crisis, much against my wishes, uh, but he made me do it. And actually, I'm glad I did it, uh, because like Stephen Hawking, I briefly understood finance. Uh, I, cu I could not now Can you explain you. what a credit default swap is? Yeah, I, I did. For a minute, I did I reckon for a minute. I could, yeah. It's like black holes. I did for a minute understand it. I, I don't understand it now, and I've forgotten all that stuff. But at the end of writing about the financial crisis, it is perfectly clear it, is caused by, it was caused by the banks. The banks were the only people to blame, and yet, you know, we elected a chancellor, George Osborne, who blamed us and punished us. And the bankers, uh, you know, there's that famous thing that is said about T.S. Eliot and his wife, um, Vivian, you know, um, who he put in a mental asylum. And I think, I think it may have been Virginia Woolf who said um, Tom went mad and put his wife in a mental asylum. <laughs> and really, George, George Osborne went mad and punished us for what the bankers had done. And, you know, it is very, very difficult. But I also think that that's the, that's the genesis of the idea of maybe of the idea of an elite, which is now, I think, probably one of the yes. dominating factors. Because, you know, Fred Goodwin didn't go to prison. Bankers didn't go to prison. There is, you know, if I, if I you know, the, the London riots being a good example, people who stole b bottles of water worth, you know, four pounds went to prison. Yeah. People who stole four billion pounds didn't go to prison. Well, that's why, you know, everybody asks me all the time, why do you not write about Brexit? Why do you not write about Jeremy Corbyn? Why do you not write about Donald Trump. And the reason is because all these phenomena are the aftershock. They're all the things that are following on the main shocks. 
And the, the, the seminal shocks are the shock of the invasion of Iraq and then the financial crisis. And everything that you're seeing in terms of Brexit, everything you're seeing in terms of the, uh, the discontent of people uh, and feeling and blaming immigrants for the situation that they find themselves in is entirely down to the policy of austerity uh, created by um, George Osborne and David Cameron, who have left the scene in uh, the chaos that they have created. Yeah, the person who I think has most disappointed me this year is probably Nick Clegg, who has gone fresh from his betrayal over tuition fees, has gone to, you know, to Facebook, to a company that I think has done more to damage democracy in the last three or four years than any single politician. Um, David Runciman, in his book, How Democracy Ends, says that you know, he thinks that Mark Zuckerberg is more dangerous to democracy than, than Donald Trump. And I think that's entirely true. It has become a, a vector for misinformation. It has become, this is your, to your point, it has become what looks like authentic reporting on politics because it's unmediated, it's from the people. Right, and, and therefore you bypass a whole set of gatekeepers. But what it means is, is that any, you know, someone sitting in Missouri can run a page that says the Pope endorses Trump and spread it as a news story, and then that becomes the, the truth. It's as, as true as something that's in the New York but Times. What I try to do in this play is represent people who are sophisticated about this stuff. When I was young, I wrote about, as it were, idealism versus realism. And I thought there was some sort of, you know, oh, people who behave well and people who behave badly, and that they are, as it were, sheep and goats, and that they're, they're different kinds of people and principled people and unprincipled people. And now we're all incredibly sophisticated about this stuff. And I think in the play, what I'm trying to do is show how complicated these things are. And a number of people have commented, and I, I'm, I'm moving into the area of spoilers, um, that it may not be best for the heroine that she runs. And that, you know, the heroine is faced with this problem, should she run? And actually, a lot of people feel, um, having seen the play, oh my God, she's going to run, that's not, that's not great. And that's not good for her. And that this sort of ambivalence we all now have about wanting to commit ourselves is really the subject that I write about in my plays more than, it, more than any. Uh, because there's this sort of pretense now that things don't come at a price, and actually commitment to something as profound as leading a political party, or being a vicar in South London, or being a teacher in the East End actually comes at tremendous personal cost. And to sort of pretend, oh, I'm strong, independent, and free, and I will take this, you know, nobody's strong, independent, and free. And, you know, it, it, to, to, to represent the reality of these difficult choices in life is everything I want to do as a writer. But also I felt that the character of Pauline is one I'm not used to seeing on stage because she's very, as a politician, because she's very open and vulnerable. And there is, I think, a modern problem, which is a kind of corrosive cynicism has invaded everything. A kind of, if I don't care about something, then I can't be criticised. I saw you in the, the documentary about Joan Didion, and she had that um, phrase, inside baseball, about political reporters, right? The idea that everybody is about showing off how much they know, and it's all a kind of club, and, and actually just saying, I like this, you know, I'm going to do this. I've not, you know, that, that kind of straightforwardness is something that we sort of despise now. We kind of see it as junior or uncool. Well, Jack, you know, Jack um, is deliberately contrasted with Pauline. Jack in the play is Labour aristocracy. His father is a great um, 
thinker of the left. Um, and so he lives in the shadow of his father. Um, but he takes on this idea, which I think many people have, um, if I can just get my life in order, and if I can just get the turmoil of my feelings under control, if I marry somebody nice, and we have a couple of children, I can get the whole subject of psychology and disturbance out of the way, and I can live peacefully and get on with my work and do good in the world, you know? And that is the very opposite of how Pauline is living. And Pauline is much more isolated, she's alone. It's implied that um, the most significant relationship of her life has been with Jack so many years earlier. Um, her closest friend is gay. She doesn't look like somebody who's expressing herself in relationships with other people, and yet she's remaining what I would regard as authentic. And that's what I mean about talking about the, the price of the choices people make. There isn't a right way. There's a cost for every price. And to, uh, to, for, sorry, for every course. And to insist on that is to be grown up, I think. We've made 25 minutes in without me mentioning Brexit, I think, maybe. Oh, have we got to talk about Brexit? But only one question about Brexit, I promise, which is that in your memoir, you talk about growing up in um, East Sussex and about the, this sort of suffocating conformity that people felt, this dread of unsaid rules that, you know, were hemming everybody in. And I went and looked up and, you know, um, that part of the world voted in favour of leaving the EU. So how in the course of your lifetime have you got to a situation in communities like that from a dread, you know, of, the, of breaking the rules and, and, and a feeling of overwhelming conformity to essentially kind of flicking two Vs at the establishment and saying, you've all told us this is a terrible idea, but we want to do it anyway. Uh, is it because you left? Is, that, is, is, it it, is it because you left? You mean, if I lived in Bexhill, would I vote for Brexit? Yeah. I, I don't think, I mean, I hope I wouldn't. Uh, it seemed to me that, oh, I mean, this is such an enormous subject. I don't know how to begin to talk about it. Uh, but, you know, the, the stifling conformity and the hell of suburban life, as it then was, <laughs> I, I don't think it's as bad now. In other words, it, you could say that in my lifetime, we've had however many years, 50 years, going backwards politically, but we have gone forward socially. I mean, life is a lot easier in those places. People do not kill themselves because they are gay to the, in the same numbers that they killed themselves in my youth. People in America still, in, 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 in the Midwest, still kill themselves because they're gay. There's an incredible level of teenage suicide. But that feeling of, of intense social repression and your neighbours staring at you and everything being done under the scrutiny of the people that you're living close to and next door to, and the terrible sexual and social repression that came with that and which, you know, made um, Bexhill and Hastings St. Leonard's, because finally I have written about St. Leonard's in this, in this play, um, that made them such really miserable places for people to live in. I think that has gone in my lifetime, and, and thank goodness for it. It is an extraordinary fact, though, if you think about that, the, the social liberalism, you talk about the fact that more people are living fuller lives, you know, that women have far greater opportunities, yes. that gay people have far greater opportunities, which has been achieved by politics. Yes. 
And yet we hate our politicians more now I than we did I don't think then. it's been achieved, but I, I, you know, it, it, I was lucky enough to be born just, uh, uh, you know, soon after Simone de Beauvoir wrote The Second Sex. I, I would now think The Second Sex is one of the you know, five most influential books of the 20th century, and you read it today, it's better than any modern feminist book you will read. It's fantastic. And you know, it had a huge reverberations throughout the Western world. And you know, feminism is one of the, the great successes of my lifetime compared with other political movements. Mm, I, was about to, I was about to say, you haven't read my book on feminism yet, no, so I'm let's, sorry. let's just part... Do, I mean, it go, might be up there with the second sex. Do you sex, go where I'm Simone not. goes? I, I, I agree with you. I think it is an absolutely phenomenal piece of philosophy. Um, and I think it's very hard for a woman to get seen in that... In, to be put in that bracket, and, and she absolutely belongs in the, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century in terms of conceptualising it. Do you think the Labour Party will ever elect a female leader? Oh, for goodness sake, they've got to, haven't they? I mean, the next one's got, there, there isn't, there's no way it cannot be. You know, this issue seems to me, you know, I mean, people who say to me, oh, this issue about whether a woman should lead the Labour Party <laughs> isn't really very important compared with Brexit and, uh, you know, argument. They're, I think they're out of their heads. You know, why is the supposedly progressive party in this country absolutely incapable of electing a woman leader? What is the problem? You know, this year at conference, actually it was during rehearsal, wasn't there meant to be a vote about whether the deputy leader would have to be a woman? And that vote was pulled the night before. You're not even allowed to vote on the issue, let alone actually But that was a happen. classic Labour Party. So what happened with that vote is, but basically the leadership, the Corbynite leadership, don't like Tom Watson, who's the deputy leader, who's elected independently because he's a Brownite. So what they did is went, ha, 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 what we'll do is we'll elect another deputy leader so his power will be diluted and we'll, we'll, we'll pretend that it's actually about feminism. So we'll have a... Which is exactly what happened with all women shortlists, which were largely brought in to try and keep out the far left, the trots, who were mostly slightly dull men in the 80s. And then in the 90s, they said, let's have all women shortlist because we don't, we don't think there are that many female trots. And so there is this terrible cycle in the Labour Party where feminism gets achieved because one faction wants to knife the other faction, not because anyone actually believes in it. It's very upsetting. Well, but I think you've made my point for that's me. That's my own <laughs> personal <laughs> grievance that I can air at a further length. Um, we have to leave you because they need to reset the theatre and you know, put a play on. But please give a big round of applause to Sir David Hare. And I've got a signed book. I've got to tell him that I'm signing book. Also, <laughs> he will be signing books and play scripts, I presume. Where will you be signing them? I think in the bookshop. In the bookshop. There we go. Yeah. Thank you.